During World War II, the German military co-opted a commercial device known as the Enigma. The Enigma consisted of a keyboard together with a series of rotors that you could turn the rotors to different settings and it would change the output of the keyboard in a predictable but very complicated manner. And what the Germans would do is they would send their messages through this machine called the Enigma. Well, for a very long time, the Allies sought to crack the so-called Enigma. And Alan Turing put together a team at a facility called Bletchy Park and worked hard developing systems that would crack the Enigma. These systems eventually became known as computers. But time after time, the team failed to crack the Enigma because the machine was just too complicated and the possibilities were too numerous. Eventually, though, the Allies captured an Enigma device. And that became one of the most important secrets in World War II. The Allies had an Enigma. Because now the Allies could read the German messages. This gave an incredible advantage to the Allies, and it led to cracking the Enigma, which became one of the most important aspects of saving lives during World War II. Turing and his team were trusted with a great piece of information, the key to the enigma, how to crack the German message. They had been entrusted with one of the most valuable messages ever. We actually have something more important, the message that we have been entrusted with, the gospel. While the enigma did save lives, cracking the enigma saved lives, the gospel saves souls and grants eternal life to people. Today, what we're going to see is we're going to see that gospel ministry is not always easy, but is completely worth it. You can start turning in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. We're going to take a short break from Daniel for one week, just as we uh, go into 2 Timothy here briefly. If you want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to see the gospel ministry is always worth it, even when it's not easy. Let me set the stage for you a little bit. Second Timothy is probably the last thing that the Apostle Paul wrote. In fact, it's very likely that he wrote this maybe even days before his death. Paul had been put in jail sometime between 64 and 67 AD. He knew that his time was short. He knew that his execution was likely. And Paul pins what is essentially his last will and testament, a letter to his protege, to the person he was mentoring, to the person that he called his own son in the faith, Timothy. This letter is an instructional message from the elder apostle to the beloved Timothy and co-worker in the faith. It calls for steadfastness in the face of challenges. It calls for a responsibility that Christian leaders bear to faithfully carrying on the teachings of Jesus. It takes a poignant tone, provides a glimpse into profound spiritual legacy, and gives us insight into what Paul's will was 
for the next generation of leaders in the church. In 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 14, Paul appeals to Timothy to remain loyal to the gospel. Today, we will be ordaining Tim, mentor, as a deacon. And so while some aspects of our sermon are going to be very strongly connected to the ordination of a deacon, that is not the only takeaway from the sermon. In fact, all of us have things to learn from the call to remain faithful to the gospel. We've all been called to gospel ministry. Some of us are called to, called to hold a particular office, but we all have the call to remain faithful to the gospel of Christ. So let's read first, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 6 through 14. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed an er a, sorry, a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The first point that I want us to draw out of our text. The first emphasis. You have been called to minister. But that does not mean that ministry will always be easy. You've been called to minister, but it doesn't mean that ministry will always be easy. I'm sorry that I have to say this, but it's true. It's a reality. There are times when ministry is hard. Paul, as he wrote 2 Corinthians, was facing imminent death. Early Christian tradition holds that the Apostle Paul was beheaded, executed in Rome. The year, somewhere between 64 AD and 67 AD. Paul lost his life for the sake of the gospel. So imagine the elder Paul sitting in prison, knowing that his execution is likely, pinning this letter to Timothy. And what does he say? Ministry is hard. Timothy, ministry is hard hard. Paul will likely never see Timothy again. In fact, tradition is that he was executed here, so he didn't. What's more, prison brought shame on a people. Paul is telling Timothy, don't be ashamed. Ministry is hard. 
But hard does not mean impossible. And that's the reminder that Paul shares. The first thing he says in verse 6, remember decisions made and the time of calling provide important motivation. Timothy, remember the decisions you've made. Timothy, remember the time that you accepted the calling to ministry. These are things that will motivate you going forward. He starts by saying, Timothy, fan the flame of the gifts that you have been given for ministry. Fan them. Use them. The idea here is use the gift. You've been equipped for ministry. Use those gifts. Bring them to their full potential. He says, fan in the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul is really saying, Timothy, remember that time when we called you out for ministry? When we laid our hands on you, recognizing that God had called you to ministry. Remember that time when we laid our hands on you? It wasn't some magical spell. It was our recognition that God had called you to ministry. Remember, we recognize God's work in your life. When the going gets tough, remember, you have been called. The Greek word here that is translated as through, through the laying on of hands, is the Greek word dia, which is translated as through. It also can be translated as in association with. It doesn't mean that the laying on of hands is what gave Timothy some special gifts. Rather, it means that it was a recognition of those special gifts. Paul is saying, Timothy, we all recognize God's calling in your life. We got together, we saw that God was calling you to serve, and we laid our hands on you to recognize that serving. Don't forget it. When the going gets tough, remember your calling. In verse 7, he reminds Timothy, you've received the most important resource. You've already received the most important resource. You don't need to be timid in your ministry because the Holy Spirit has been given to you. For the Spirit of God The Holy Spirit of God does not make us timid. Rather, we should be courageous in ministry. The idea here of timid is actually a pretty strong word. It can also mean cowardice. Paul's saying, Timothy, don't be a coward. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Draw on that power. God's Spirit is a spirit of power. It's a spirit of love. It's a spirit of self-discipline. When ministry is hard, Timothy, and you feel like giving up, you have access to the very power of God through the Holy Spirit. When ministry is hard and you feel like giving up, you have brothers and sisters that you love. When ministry is hard and you feel like giving up, dig deep. Remember your training. The self-discipline that you have trained into yourself through God's Spirit. God has been teaching you. He has indwelled you. And He is there for you. The most important resource. Finally, in this small section, Paul reminds Timothy that relationships matter. 
far more than we often realize. That's verse 8. Relationships matter, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me as we rear up under the weight of ministry. Remember, Paul is asking Timothy to join with him as they rear up under the weight of ministry as Paul is standing on his deathbed, ready to be executed for the sake of the gospel. And he says, Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't give in. Rather, we're in this together. Relationships matter. We are in this together. You have others who will join you. You have others on whom you may depend. Timothy, don't bear the weight alone. I doubt that there is anybody who understands the importance of relationship in the midst of difficulty quite like a Marine understands that. Marines form the concept of brotherhood and it holds deep significance. Members of the Marine Corps emphasize this idea of brotherhood. It refers to a strong bond and camaraderie that develops among Marines. Why? Because it's rooted in their shared experience, their mutual respect for each other, and their commitment to their cause, their commitment to value, honor, courage, and commitment. Marines form this brotherhood, and they use the term brother when they talk to one another to emphasize the familiar and supportive nature of being a fellow Marine. The shared sense of purpose brings them together and, in fact, a Marine will take offense if you refer to them as being a Marine in the past tense. Don't tell someone, you were a Marine, right? No. A Marine is a Marine for life. No matter what happens, they are brothers for life. I want us to realize, though, that this is the sort of relationship that we should have in Christ. Where we come alongside each other as family, where we come alongside each other with shared purpose of honoring the gospel, of a loyalty to the gospel that binds us together in an unbreakable bond. That's what Paul's calling for from Timothy. So let's turn it into an action step. Check your tool belt and make sure that all your tools are in place. As we go out and we minister to the gospel, we need to check our tool belt. Make sure everything is in place and ready to go. Remember the decisions that you've made for Christ. You know, this is the first Sunday since January 1st. How are you doing on your commitments that you made? Remember the commitments you've made. Remember the decisions that you've made. Remember the resources that you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Remember your brothers and sisters in Christ are there to back you up. They've got your back. Use them. Draw on them. In verses 9 through 12, Paul reminds, 
never forget that you're a minister of the gospel. Timothy, don't forget what it is that we're doing here. You are a minister of the gospel. The fact that the gospel is central does matter. It is our purpose. We're not ministers of health. We're not ministers of wealth. We're not seeking to merely bring about good deeds in our society. We're not even ministers of peace, of welfare, or comfort. Those are all nice. Those are all important things. But they pale in comparison with the gospel. Never forget that you're a minister of the gospel. You see, we have to understand the gospel. First of all, the gospel is rooted, it's grounded in the reality of God's unmerited favor. Central to the gospel is the reality of God's unmerited favor. The call of the gospel is a call to be set apart, but not based on works. We follow Christ, not so that we might be saved, but because we are saved. We minister not to earn our way to heaven, but because we have already been appointed to heaven. God has done this not because of works that we've done, but because of his purpose and his grace. I want you to understand that there are times when anybody who is ministering to the gospel can lose sight of grace. They begin to maybe think of themselves as having earned God's favor. It's easy to do. Or they begin to think of themselves as so awful that God could never look on them favorably. Those are like the two extremes, but we often find ourselves in them. Sometimes we're like, I've been working hard. I've been doing it. Man, God must really love me. Other times we're like, I can't believe I failed. God hates me. I'm just not worthy of God. Okay, here's the reality. You have been working hard. You aren't worthy of God. Find the middle, though, of God's grace. Sin, forgiven. Your good works, irrelevant. God's grace is central to the gospel. The minister of the gospel must remember there is nothing we have done to earn salvation. We follow Christ, not that we might be saved, but because we are saved. We minister not to earn our way to heaven, but because we've already been appointed to heaven. Before the beginning of time, God gave grace by appointing Jesus to come to earth, to die on the cross, to grant forgiveness to all who trust in Jesus' death on the cross for payment to their sins. We're not going to get into supra or infralapsarianism today. But from the beginning of time, God granted grace. But beyond just the gospel being grounded in grace, we also must understand the bookends. The bookends. The gospel is the message of death's defeat and eternal life. That's verse 10. The gospel is the message that death has been defeated. 
and eternal life has been given. Romans 5.12 and then verse 21 together form a beautiful picture. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Then verse 21 says, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel has bookends death as a result of sin, eternal life because of Jesus. Have you ever been on a team that's brainstorming, trying to come up with a new idea or to flesh out an idea and the idea begins to bloat? Yeah. You talked about building this structure and all of a sudden you've got the Taj Mahal. It happens almost all the time. Whenever Emily and I are looking at the budget, I, I tend to do this. Emily's like, can we talk about this thing that we need to buy? And later I've spent three times as much money and we have not the thing that we intended to buy. Or grocery shopping. Do you ever go grocery shopping with somebody else? Really dangerous. <laughs> Ideas tend to bloat. We need to know what the bookends are. The bookends of the gospel. We all deserve to die. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we can have eternal life. We must never forget that we're ministers of the gospel. Don't get caught up on things that are outside the gospel. We should seek to improve life, but never at the expense of the gospel. Why is this the case? Because the gospel is the greatest news ever. I've heard it said, if you were born in America, you won the lottery. There's some truth to that. But the reality is, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you have access, you've been granted something more incredible than anybody can imagine. Eternal life. I was talking with somebody uh, about two months ago, and we were talking about the fact that Americans spend an incredible amount of money on the goal of extending their life by just a small fraction. We spend a huge amount of money with the sole goal of extending our life by just a little bit. If you don't believe me, go walk into the hospital this afternoon and take a look at, at the beauty and the extravagance. The message of the gospel is that for the low cost of zero dollars, you can extend your life forever. That's the message of the gospel. So let's turn into an action step. Remind yourself of the gospel. Keep it in the bookends. We were all sinners in need of a savior. Jesus died on the cross paying the penalty for our sins, that all who accept Jesus' offer of salvation, his death on the cross, might have eternal life. That is the message that we preach. That is our focus. Why? Because the gospel is worth it. The gospel is worth it. I know that a lot of you think I'm a risk taker. I'm actually pretty risk adverse. I really do think carefully before I take action. It's just that I calculate the odds and figure it'll be all right. 
I want to tell you, the investment in the gospel is secure. Your investment in the gospel is secure. That's the second half of verse 12. I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. The investment in the gospel is not insured by the FDIC. It's insured by the Savior. The God of the universe is able to secure your investment. The gospel is worth it because there is no safer investment that you can make. If I'm being honest with you, I will tell you that I'm banking everything on this investment. And I mean, I don't, I don't say things like this often because it, it's not something that I want to make a big I chose not to take my dream job because God told me don't do it. I had a very secure job even after I chose not to take my I will tell you personally, I'm banking everything on the investment in the gospel because I believe it with all my heart. I'm calling on you to trust that your investment in the gospel is worth it. If somebody tells you to invest all your money in a certain stock, ask them if they've done the same. I have. And I'm asking you, invest yourself in the gospel. But as you do so, recognize that the truth of the gospel must be preserved. With such a valuable message, with a message that is worth your everything, the truth of the gospel must be preserved. It comes down to a really strong imperative that Paul gives Timothy. Guard the gospel. Watch over the gospel. Protect the gospel. Because the responsibility to the gospel is a profound responsibility. If you look at verse 14, the second half, carefully, you'll see that there is actually a really important reality baked into verse 14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted in you. The reality is there are those who would seek to destroy the gospel. Guard it. Beyond that, though, Paul's calling on Timothy to recognize something. You've been entrusted, Timothy, with the gospel. The gospel that Paul was giving his life for, he was passing on to Timothy and said, Timothy, I'm trusting you with this. The thing that was worth my life is now in your hands to carry on. Almost 2,000 years later, that same gospel has been entrusted to each person in this room. That gospel that Paul gave his life for. That others throughout the past two centuries, not two centuries, two millennia, have given their life for time and time again is entrusted into your hands. The responsibility of the gospel is profound. Many of you have, whether it be 
a suit jacket or some other object that was given to you by a relative. You were entrusted with it. And we protect it. We honor it. We care for it. The gospel has been entrusted into our hands. But you're not alone. You see, with the help of the Spirit, with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we can carry forward the gospel. That's our responsibility. That's our duty. I still remember when my brother was commissioned as an Air Force officer. I got to attend his commissioning ceremony. And he had to take an oath of office, a solemn pledge that affirmed his commitment to uphold and defend the Constitution. I want to read to you the oath. It says, I, insert full name, having been appointed a rank in the United States Air Force, do solem- solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. So help me, God. This oath underscores an officer's dedication to the principles of the Constitution. I didn't ask Tim to come up with an oath to take. But rather, we examined Tim. And I can tell you with complete confidence that Tim has expressed his loyal commitment to the gospel that has been entrusted to him as an action step take a moment remind yourself of your commitment are you committed to the gospel at this time i want to invite tim and all of the ordained men in the church to come forward as we lay hands on tim not to bestow some special power, but rather in recognition of the call that God has placed on Tim's life. So to give you an idea of how we're going to do this, I'm going to pray. We're going to give Tim a charge. And then um, I'll invite all of the deacon's wives and Joanna to come up while we sing our invitation song, and they are all going to pray over Tim during that time. But we're going to lay hands on Tim as we recognize God's call on Tim's life. Please join me in prayer. Father, we recognize that you have been at work in Tim's life. From the moment of birth, you've been at work. You've been at work from the moment when he accepted Jesus as his Savior. You've been at work growing Tim, giving him knowledge, insight, 
giving him gifts that he can use as he serves, giving him a desire and a loyalty to you. And so, Father, at this time, we recognize as a church, as representatives of your church, that you have called Tim to serve as a deacon, a servant who loyally serves under the banner of the gospel of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would bless Tim's ministry. I pray that you would give him strength, that when the ministry of the gospel is hard, he would turn to you. He would turn to his brothers and sisters in Christ, that he would remember that you have called him. I pray that when enemies come against the gospel, that Tim would stand firm to defend the gospel that has granted him salvation, that has granted so many salvation. I pray that as Tim serves as a deacon, that he would be motivated and drawn by the legacy of gospel ministry that you have preserved through your church, through your servants. I pray, Lord, that Tim's loyalty would be to you, to the gospel, that he would be loyal to the calling that you have placed on his life. Father, we recognize that it is nothing that we have done, it is nothing that Tim has done. It is your work in Tim's life. And so we commend Tim to you for gospel service. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Tim, it has been a wonder and an amazement to watch as God has grown you. And it's been fun to have you serving as a yoke fellow. It's fun to get to know you. It's fun to serve alongside you. May your service be a blessing to all those with whom you work. We thank you, and we're excited to serve alongside you, Tim. Thank you.